During the week, I came across, well, I'd heard about it before, but I actually finally got it this week. I came across a lovely book uh, called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Macasias. Anyone heard of this? Okay, Jan had heard of it, yeah. And uh, it is, it's, a truly, it's a truly lovely book about the boy, a mole, a fox, and a horse. Um, but it started out as some drawings on the social media platform Instagram. And then it grew in, po- in popularity, which led to the book. And this book was released back in October, since when it sold about half a million copies. And I suspect that a lot of those copies are people who have read it and said, I've really got to get this for someone else. And I really do recommend it. I says, yeah, I reckon I'll be getting more than one copy of it already. So, yeah. And it's not so much a story, really, as a series of lovely pictures with thoughts and reflections kind of attached to them. And in one sense, you can read the whole thing in about 20 minutes. But you will go back to it again and again, or at least I know I will. And there are a couple of pictures from the book that I want to show you this morning because they kind of offer a way into what I want to share with you this morning. And the first one is the boy talks to the horse and he says, what's the bravest thing you have ever said? Said the boy. Help, said the horse. And another one, a couple of pages on, asking for help isn't giving up, said the horse. It's refusing to give up. What is the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. We've spent the last few weeks in the early chapters of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, We have looked at some letters sent to seven churches in the region of the Roman Empire known as Asia Minor, or what we would today call Turkey. And today we turn to the last letter, to the church at Laodicea. And this is probably slightly better known, certainly if you grew up in church, than the other letters, even if we didn't necessarily recognize where the bits that we knew came from. Uh, I grew up in a church where I would often hear preachers draw on this letter and the words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. And it was a message that was aimed at those who had never entered into a relationship with Jesus. There was the image of Jesus standing at the door of our hearts, knocking and asking us to invite him in. And there was a painting in the 19th century by William Holman Hunt called Jesus, Light of the World, which shows Jesus knocking at a long, unopened door. There's all sorts of growth up against the door because it hasn't been opened for so long. And if you look closely from the outside, the door has no handle, so it can only be opened from the inside. And it's a really powerful image, both in the painting and in preaching. But it's not quite how John uses it. It's because John isn't writing to a bunch of unbelievers. John pictures Jesus stood at the door 
of the church seeking readmission. This is the community of believers being described here. To all intents and purposes, they probably thought they were doing all right. In fact, as we'll see, that might be part of their problem. They probably thought that Jesus was amongst them. And it probably came as quite a shock to hear Jesus say all of these things, particularly that he's outside calling and pleading to be allowed in. Now we have seen in the different letters that each of the churches has different strengths and weaknesses, different challenges. But Laodicea is a church about which Jesus really has nothing positive to say. Last week we looked at two very different churches, Sardis and Philadelphia, and we saw that despite appearances, Jesus didn't seem to have much to say, good to say about Sardis either. He had lots of good to say about Philadelphia, despite the fact that everybody would have looked at them as the really struggling one. But even in Sardis, there were a few amongst the members of Sardis that Jesus could command. And we can't say that about Laodicea. In fact, the graph, the language Jesus uses is quite graphic. Jesus says they make him sick. So what's Laodicea's problem? Well, their problem is that they refuse to ask for help. They think they can manage all on their own. That they had all they needed. They were the church who refused to ask for help. It's there actually in the name itself. The name Laodicea is actually made up of two Greek words. The first word is Laos, which is sort of an assembly of people. And Dice, which was a goddess of justice, or it came to to sort of mean having the ability to decide. So it's basically a bunch of people who say that they can decide for themselves what's right and wrong. There are people who can make the right decisions by themselves. So one translation was that these were people who took pride in being able to take right decisions and what decide what is right for themselves. But what else do we know about Laodicea? Well, of all the cities to whom John wrote, Laodicea was the most prosperous. It had several major industries which kept it going. It was a banking and financial centre, which normally by itself can make a place quite prosperous. But Laodicea minted their own coins. So Laodicea quite literally had a licence to print money. It also did quite well in the clothing industry. They specialised in a black wool and were able, as far as possible, to produce it really cheaply. They were really the sort of a pioneer of mass production clothing. And they produced garments which were sought all over the region and indeed all over their known world. And it was also a highly recognised medical centre. And in particular produced a, a type of eye salve which could help fight off all sorts of eye infections which in turn could prevent them, prevent blindness in those days. And together these things made this city the wealthiest in the region. So wealthy that they refused to accept any outside help. And there were a couple of big occasions when they did this. 
Last week I mentioned how Sardis and Philadelphia were struck by an earthquake in AD 17. Well, Laodicea wasn't that far away, and Laodicea was devastated by the same earthquake. And as a city that was you know, uh, loyal to Rome and on quite a important strategic place on the trade route, the Roman Empire offered to give Laodicea's government the money to rebuild the city. And Laodicea said, no, we can do it by ourselves. No need to bother yourself. And and the same happened again in AD 60. Another earthquake devastated the area. Rome offered to help. And Laodicea said, well, no, I see the offer, but I'm sure there are other areas who really need it. We don't. You know, we can look after ourselves. We've got plenty of ways of recovering the money. Don't worry about us. And that, yeah, so that happened not just once but twice. Laodicea was a city that would not ask for help. They thought they could just look after themselves. Didn't want to bother anyone. They were okay as they were. So let's have a look at this. We had... Banking, clothing, and eye salve. Three industries on which the wealth of their city had been built. Three industries of which they were immensely proud. Three industries on which they thought they could rely. And then let's look look at how Jesus describes them. Poor, naked, blind. Banking, clothing, myself. Three things which were not necessarily bad, but they came to be what the people of Laodicea relied on. And it's not uncommon for values on which the local culture is based to move into the church. We absorb a lot more than we think we do. And perhaps even amongst the church members at Laodicea, there were financiers, physicians, cloth merchants, But it's very easy when something provides you with such a degree of certainty and security to believe it's all you need, that you can make it on your own. And gradually God gets shunted out of the picture. And Jesus says, if you're going to rely on those things, they will ultimately let you down. It's not what they're there for. You think they'll last forever, but you're deluding yourself. But there's another detail about life in Laodicea that's helpful for understanding this letter. Although they were prosperous and they had several strong industries, there was one thing with which Laodicea struggled. They struggled to get a decent water supply into the city. That when, you, when you've got money, though, you can get around that. And that's what they tried to do. And if you look at the map, Laodicea, if I can get this red thing to work. Yeah, Laodicea is here. Or if you're looking over this side. See if I can. Laodicea is here. And there's, there's two cities either side of it. Uh, one is Hierapolis and one is Colossae. And Colossae was the place to which Paul wrote the Bible letter to the Colossians. So Colossae was to the south, Herapolis to the north. And they both had really good 
water springs, but they were quite different. At Hierapolis, they had hot water springs. And these waters were rich in minerals and were believed to have a number of medicinal qualities. If any of you watch Antiques Road Trip, this week Charles Hansen was in Harrogate and they showed a hot water spring and they, and they got him to taste it. It's horrible. He says, yeah, but it actually has healing properties in it. And it's still, it still has medicinal qualities to it. And also hot water was really good for cleaning stuff. So Herapolis' waters had cleansing and therapeutic effects. Colossae had cold water springs, which produced really refreshing water. On a hot day, you could go to Colossae and you could get a drink. Oh, it was beautiful. Laodicea, so close, a mere six, seven miles from each of them, stuck in the middle, had neither. So they tried to pipe water from Herapolis and Colossae via limestone aqueducts. But there were a couple of problems with the water when it got there. Firstly, it needed treatment because it, in transit it got contaminated by the limestone. But the other problem, and more and perhaps more understanding for uh, this letter, is by the t- by the time it got to them, wherever it came to them from, it was lukewarm. The stuff that the, from the hot springs of Herapolis was no longer hot when it arrived at, uh, at Laodicea. It had cooled down in transit, whereas the water from the cold springs at Colossae had warmed up en route. To Laodicea. So if you were going to go to where the water arrived at Laodicea and you dipped your cup into the, the spring and you took a sip of it, your first response would be, <coughs> and in fact, lukewarm water was only really useful for one thing. Medics could use it to try to induce someone to vomit. Can you see how that kind of feeds into the letter? See, somehow, sometimes the way this letter is read is misleading. Because sometimes it's hot and cold that are being contrasted. It's And it's kind of the way we use the terms today. We can think of hot as really good. Cold is really bad. Someone's got the hots for you, they're in love with you. Someone's cold on you, they really don't want to know you. Uh, a footballer is in hot form. They might even say, he's on fire. And if you support their club, that's a good thing. But if he's out in the cold... Different story. Or when churches put on a festival or camp for young people, they'll try to give it a name like something like Catch the Fire. If they call the event Catch the Cold, it probably wouldn't sell so many tickets. I still occasionally hear people talk, urging people to be on fire and hot for the Lord with warnings about growing cold. 
And there is some of that in the Bible. Jesus talks about times of trouble where the love of many grows cold. But that's not the way the image is being used here. It can be as interpreted, because it can be interpreted as if Jesus is saying, I wish you were really on fire for me, hot, or you were really opposed to me, cold, rather than just a bit meh. And again, maybe true as far as it goes, but not what Jesus and John are saying here. This isn't about emotions or feelings. It's about purpose. It's not hot, good, cold, bad. The water from Herapolis and the water from Colossae were both good, but for different reasons. So Jesus is saying, I just wish you had some sort of purpose. I don't really mind what it is. You can be like a cold water and you can provide refreshment for the weary. Or you can be really hot water and offer healing to those who are broken, cleansing to those who are mired in sin. But really... You just serve no purpose at all. They had forgotten that Jesus was the real source of their life. They had been blessed with so much. But they thought what they had was enough for them. They'd become comfortable. They'd settled. They'd lacked what I would call a holy discontent. And it was killing them as a church. Because they served no real purpose because Jesus wasn't at the centre of anything they were about he was left on the outside and there are some who try to fit the different churches in Revelation into different ages in church history and they often liken Laodicea to the modern day church especially in the west we're relatively prosperous. We've got great health care. Uh, we've largely solved so many of the problems which with, with which our ancestors until very recent times would have seriously struggled. But we've become quite self-reliant and it's dulled our sense of need for God. I don't think it's that straightforward, but it may describe some because it is possible for us to suffer in that kind of way. Advertising can leave us in a position where the only discontent we ever feel is that longing for more and more stuff. And even those blessed with wealth can find themselves in the position where they never have enough. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does someone need? And he always said, a little bit more than what they have. Or we can be forever chasing the latest fashions. Perhaps not clothes, but technology, food, travel, whatever. And these are bad things, but they become all we care about. Or we have been we have been blessed with the kind of health care that the vast majority of human history, including those at the Great Laodicea, could only ever dream of. But we turn to doctors long before we ever think of prayer. And you know me well enough to know that I would never consider those two an either or, nor would I ever encourage anyone to just have faith, ignore a doctor. But we can just come to rely on what we can see and achieve rather than God. And even though we think we're following Jesus, in reality, he may be on the outside longing to come in. But he won't force it. The choice of whether he enters our lives and makes a meaningful difference 
is ours. And we can think we have all that we need. And he's saying what would really satisfy you is just on the other side of that door. And like the people of Laodicea, we can reach the position where we're happy with our lot, where we trust in what we can do for ourselves and are never brave enough to ask for help. But you know what? Although Jesus finds nothing for which he can command even a few of them, and strong as the language Jesus uses to describe their situation, Jesus hasn't given up on them. That Jesus still loves them and stands at the door and knocks. Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. Jesus is a faithful and true friend. And that's a good thing to have. Because we need friends who will be honest with us. But still love us. Don't we? Because we've all met people who pride themselves in, I tell it like it is. Nobody could call me a hypocrite, I just say it as it is. But all too often, the way they do it is in ways which just alienate you and cause more damage and don't really have much to say about about coming good. Jesus doesn't do that. He's a faithful witness. He doesn't mince his words. But he also says, I challenge or rebuke or discipline those I love. He may be on the outside, but Jesus still loves them. He is showing them their situation because they are dear to him. He's not seeking to punish them, and the Good News Bible really does translate that very very badly. But he's seeking to help them to see that he is the one who can offer what they seek. Often the coach will demand the most from those athletes with the most potential. Now, if they're not going to make it, less effort. But if you, but the, if you, if they, if they think you're the one that could actually really make a go of this, and you're not trying hard enough, they'll be the one that gets a really hard time. And the other half of how Jesus describes himself is important too. He says he's the origin of all creation. We've looked at all the others and Jesus has seen their struggle. But he's also seen good in them. Laodicea has nothing whatsoever to offer him. So what can Jesus possibly do to them? And Jesus says, I'm the origin of all creation. It doesn't matter that you have nothing to offer me. I'm the God who creates out of nothing. And all they have to do is recognise that they cannot do it on their own. And all they're asked to do is open up and invite them in. All they have to do is recognise they need his help and ask for it. 
And that's saying about coming in and eating with them and they with him. It's not just like a quick bite, you know, a cup of tea and a slice of cake. It's not just me going, grabbing, let's meet up for a coffee. It's actually a long, lingering meal. Jesus wants to spend time with them, with us, to relate to us, even to the worst of us, even when we've shut him out, even when it's gone so far that there's almost nothing left that we can offer him. All we have to do is be brave enough to say help. And we don't have to pretend with Jesus. Indeed, there is no point, for he knows us completely and loves us completely. And as I wrap up this series of the seven churches, and as we leave Revelation for a few months, I come back to where I started back in January with Jesus walking amongst the seven lampstands and the God who starts each of the letters with, I know. I know the good, the bad, the ugly. I know the joys. I know the struggles. I know. I know. I know. Jesus walks amongst us. And I know. And when back when we started this, Sue and I were talking about it one day. And she says, why are there seven churches and why those seven churches? And I suspect it was because those were the main centers in that area. And it's where John lived. But as we'll see later in the year, seven is a significant number in Revelation. It's a number of completeness. These were seven churches that we were invited just to find ourselves in. These were seven churches that were all different, even though they were in the same area at the same time. They weren't clones of each other. They had different challenges, they had different opportunities. But Jesus was interested in them all and wanted to be present in them all. So these letters were sent to particular places at a particular time. But we're invited to look into them and say, where am I in this mix? Have I lost my first love like Ephesus? Have I been faithful like Smyrna? Have I really struggled and hung on in there like Philadelphia? Have I become complacent and uh, just self-reliant like Laodicea? We're invited as individuals, as communities, as denominations to seek where we are in this. But even at our worst, there is hope. We're still his church. Even at our worst, the Spirit still seeks us out. Even when Jesus has been shut out, And we can barely hear the knocking. He stands at the door and knocks. And even when we think we've got nothing left to offer, he knows us through and through, each one of us, and says, not a problem. I'm the God who creates out of nothing.
Whatever our strengths, whatever our weaknesses, whatever our challenges, whatever the doors that lie before us, He knows, He cares. He holds us, He wants to walk with us and relate with us. And all He asks is that we invite Him in. All He asks us to do is recognize that He is the source of the life and the hope we're seeking all along. And all He wants us to do is be brave enough to say help and discover that it's the bravest and best thing we ever say. Grace and peace to you. Amen.